Welcome to HashiCast, the self-proclaimed number one podcast about the world of DevOps practices, tools, and practitioners. Welcome to HashiCast. It's very exciting. Uh, we're going to talk to a couple folks about patterns today. Some of my favorite things to talk about. Um, today we have Johnny and Lester here from Red Hat. I'm really excited to have them. Uh, Johnny and Lester, would you care to introduce yourselves? Let our audience know what you do, what you're interested in. So my name is uh, Lester Claudia. I've been with Red Hat about going on 14 years. Spent 12 of those years uh, with our consulting arm going over to customers. Uh, mainly it was on the intelligence sector side, but we also handled commercial and you know, state government uh, customers. And, and now I'm in engineering working uh, on, the, on the engineering arm of Red Hat, working with the validated patterns team. So um, things that I like to do is, you know, we live in Colorado, so a lot of times we get on a motorcycle and just drive um, down to New Mexico and Arizona and then come back, you know, spend a few days out there camping. So those are kind of the things that I that I like to do. What about you, Johnny? Yeah, so I'm, I'm Johnny Rickard. I've been at Red Hat for next month will be seven years. Uh, I, I also came from the consulting arm of Red Hat with Lester. I was in public sector uh, for, I think, five years or close to it. As, uh, and I left as a senior architect. Um, Lester actually used to be my manager once upon a time, a long time ago. Uh, and yeah, so basically in consulting, pretty much did everything, uh, you know, like wherever, wherever there's a need, I was there, you know, like I, I got sent to, to go help fill it or, you know, get it, get it done. So, um, then I moved over to engineering also on the validated patterns team and, uh, yeah, just been nerding out pretty heavily for the last couple of years. Like Rosemary, you and I have talked a couple of times on my other live stream. Uh, you know, so it's, it's pretty cool to, to actually be on this side. I, I live in Texas. I, and yeah, I play golf and spend a lot of time with my family and yeah, it's pretty much it. Nice. Yeah. You know, I think you've mentioned validated patterns a few times. So what are validated patterns? How did it come about and why uh, are people interested in them? Well, I get, I could take that if, if you want. Well, it really started, um, the initiative really started, and, it, and the story kind of goes something like this, right? When we used to go to our customers, Johnny and I used to go and talk to the customers. We, we did what we called discovery sessions. And as we were talk to the customers, we would talk to them the certain aspects of, of their environment, whether it was the development environment, you know, the infrastructure, what services do they have, et cetera. And um, once we did all that, all that discovery, we would go back and then look at reference architectures and we would look at these reference architects and go, oh my gosh, that's the perfect one. Of course, what we found very quickly is that reference architecture was created five years ago and it was a little outdated. Um, so one of the main questions we asked ourselves was, so how do we take these reference architectures and validate them and make them, make them up to date, right? Because technology doesn't stop. Technology continues to mature. And, you know, once upon a time that reference architecture did work, but as we started kind of implementing them and using perhaps new technology, et cetera, all of a sudden we ran into these, oh gosh, that, 
that's a little outdated. So, you know, the question that we really asked ourselves was how do we ensure that these architectures are kept up to date? And so Anthony Herr, which is our product manager, William Henry, who's our senior distinguished uh, engineer, and Andrew Bikoff, who's our senior manager, decided let's let's answer that question. And they started this initiative called Validated Patterns. And the, the key piece of Validated Patterns is the validation part, right? We use CI heavily to take some of the patterns that we've implemented, right? So we take a REMSIS architecture, we start to, you know, creating a pattern, and then we put it through the CI process that is run daily, not on all patterns, but at least every other day on each one of the patterns. And what it does is it gives us kind of this feedback of, oh, wait, the, maybe the Kubernetes API changed, or, you know, for example, we used Vault, Thank you for, for your secrets management, right? Um, so we do, you know, we test those things, right? How do we load secrets into Vault or how do we take these operators and how to deploy them? And, and so that was kind of like the initial, you know, how, how the inception of this initiative started, uh, was looking at reference architectures. How do we keep them fresh so that people can go to our GitHub uh, repositories and really go, okay, I could grab that pattern and it's been validated and it's it's going to run. Um, maybe it doesn't answer the mail to the entire use case, but at least it's a, this is the, the initial, okay, I can start with this to have a discussion with the customer. And one, one thing that we'd like to say about them too is it's, it's like you take the reference architecture and then the validated pattern is really like the evolution of that reference architecture, right? So like where yesterday, right, we took a snapshot of a point in time of what the system should look like. And the pattern is essentially saying, okay, well, let's take that, let's evolve it into something that's living, right? And then that way, as, like Lester was saying, as the operators change, as uh, resources within those operators change, like we have to update manifest, API versions, et cetera, we can go along with that and we can evolve the pattern. To, so that way, that, that thing that you delivered a month ago or yesterday that the customer was like, oh my God, this is the greatest thing that I've ever seen. We can keep that demo going and we can keep that pattern going. And then that way it, we've got a, a, a reusable, consistent framework that can be redeployed pretty much anywhere. Is the best person to come in and use these patterns someone who's just getting started? Do you find people who use this as a way to keep evolving their own infrastructure or platforms or, or architecture even after they've started implementing using validated patterns? Yeah, I, I'd say it's both, right? I think that if you are new, um, there's a little bit of a learning curve because there's Helm, right? And so if you're not familiar with using Helm or without, with not using GitOps and stuff like that, there, there is a bit of a learning curve. But as far as taking something that exists and reusing it so you can do a demo or so you can start maybe like kicking the tires to build on top of it, the multi-cloud GitOps pattern is very, very good for that use case, right? Because you can take that, that very basic pattern, you can deploy it, and then you can start layering on top of it. Now, the flip side of that is, let's say that you have a more complex situation and you're going to a customer and you can still use multi-cloud GitOps and go and deploy, you know, multiple AWS instances or an AWS and an Azure instance, and then deploy the pattern on top of it and then have your application or have their application get deployed on top and pushed out as well. So it, it kind of fits the mold for both. And we've, we've seen the patterns get reused quite a bit through different use cases. Like we have one that does object detection and 
we've seen it go from like the medical industry to be used as a demo inside of like, say like the, the post office, right? Like, Hey, maybe you could use this x-ray scanning uh, AI ML model to scan packages before they leave the warehouse or before they leave the post office or whatever it's called, you know, and, and see if there's any nefarious objects in there. I mean, it's not, it's not a one for one use case, but it's like, look, here's what we can do. We've already proven it, that we could do it with this in the medical industry. We can take the same mindset and framework and apply it to your industry as well. We, we talk about when we were in consulting, we really talked about consistency of deploying applications onto Kubernetes, right? And, and that environment. For people that are new to the the patterns, giving them this framework gives them kind of this this consistent way of describing these objects. The patterns framework generates all the manifests, and then we let Argo, CD, and GitOps really do the work because our source of truth is Git. We've had a lot of questions as, in general as an industry around what's the right interface for a developer to interact with a system, right? Do they have to know infrastructure? Do they have to know the deployment details? What is it? Uh, and GitOps started to become, I would say, a very popular solution for offering an interface, an easy interface for a developer to interact with a Kubernetes cluster. I, I know GitOps is, as a def, by definition, is beyond Kubernetes. But can you explain a little bit about what is GitOps uh, for those who may not be so familiar with it, and why are they so important, or how are they so helpful for validated patterns? It's it, it's something that takes a source and then deploys what you intended to deploy, and also looks at thrift, right? Because if you change something in in the runtime, then all of a sudden it goes, uh uh-uh, I have to go back. So in the early days when I was doing infrastructure deployments, right, we we relied on something like Puppet or Chef, right? You told it that you wanted to deploy this thing at a certain state, and if you change the state of the runtime, it goes, no, 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 I have to go back and do that. So it basically, you describe those things in Git, and then GitOps, the actual process goes through and then deploys that and says, the source of truth is Git, and I'm going to give you this environment. That's that's the way I think about it. Yeah, pretty much the same. It's You you declare what you want. You describe what, how you want your cluster to look in your Git repository. And then the Git controller, the GitOps controller, applies that change. And then with Argo CD as an operator and Argo CD as a GitOps controller, you know, it, it goes through this reconciliation loop. And it essentially says, it's, it's the config police, right? So to Lester's point, like, Hey, you're you're supposed to be X, but you're Y. Uh, depending on how you have it set up, you can have it to where it will change it back to X, or it will just essentially say it's out of sync within the Argo CD UI, or you know if you query the application in the in the thing. Um, but yeah, but I, I agree with you. GitOps is beyond Kubernetes, right? I think that um, GitOps is a huge buzzword in within Kubernetes and within the whole Kubernetes community. But it's been around for a little while. Um, that it just hasn't been coined. For that longer i think it was like 2017 or 2018 um but like we've been deploying ansible playbooks from git right we've had puppet <laughs> running out of you know pulling it down from git and doing all kinds of crazy stuff too so um it's been around for a while but i think it's i think it's just it's famous now <laughs> i guess that's where everybody has a, and this is a bit tangential but everybody has been uh asking me a question about okay GitOps. is it continuous deployment is it configuration management is it infrastructure as code and I argue a lot of it is the the mixture of the the three, right? Yeah. Um, between you know, it's not as quite as simple as saying it's as code because there's another piece to it where it's 
continuously being deployed or it's Mm -hmm. being checked and and or deployed. So in some ways it's continuous in some way, maybe not deployment, but sometimes delivery. Um, so it's been interesting to hear folks who are who are trying to understand GitOps and what practices that are already in place um, that contribute to making it easier for them to manage their infrastructure or their application deployments. Yeah, and I think it all depends on the environment that you're trying to, to manage, right? I mean, Clearly, there's some configuration things that you have to do to an environment, whether it's, you know, I need to deploy these operators in Kubernetes, or I need to make sure that we have these RBACs set, right? All that. Um, in the infrastructure side of the house, right, you, you don't want things to drift, for example, packages, right, in a production environment that just drift during, you know, that a production you know, setting, right? Uh, you want those to be very consistent. And if something drifts, you need to immediately rectify it. So um, again, the, the the premise of of all this is get, right? Get is the source of truth. What we do as far as operations, whether we're using Ansible to deploy certain things or we're using, you know, our OpenShift GitOps in, in OpenShift and Argo CD to reconcile a lot of these resources, uh, you know, it's, it's a lot to take, but at the end of the day, it's kind of this, there's configurations, there's deployment, there's a lot of things that, that go into that. I promise we'll get to the validated pattern, but they're just these burning questions that I have. And I'm like, I need to ask some going. folks who, yeah. know, who know a little bit more about this. But, um, you know, a lot of um, folks think there's, you know, you must use Helm or you must use an operator, right? When should you be using one or the other? And should you really be using both? Yes. So it, the, the easy answer is yes, right? Now, when would you use an operator over a Helm chart? So, and this is Johnny, right? So very simpleton. Um, but an operator is when you need to control the life cycle of something, right? So, so say, or you want the automated life cycle of something. So say I want to deploy, uh, all right, I'm sorry, I'm a Red Hat guy. So I got I to throw a lot of Red Hat products out there, right? So say I want to use OpenShift GitOps. Um, and I don't want I don't want to be responsible for that thing updating on its own, right? I, or I don't want to be responsible for updating it. I want it to update on its own when a new update comes out. So the operator, what it does is it goes through its loop, and then when the OLM, the uh, the operator um, lifecycle manager catches an update, it will. If I have it set to automatic, it will roll out the update to the the latest version of OpenShift GitOps. Now that that's a little living on the edge there. But at the same time, it's that's the idea behind it, right? It's like you've got this continuous life cycle that you're not responsible for anymore. Now, I would when you use a Helm chart, it's when you have one, it doesn't fit the operator framework, right? So maybe maybe it doesn't require a life cycle, um, or two, uh, you've just got a Helm chart from upstream, uh, you know, from a from a product that you're using and they don't have one, uh, and yeah, it, it's just. It's just as easy to use a Helm chart because at the end of the day, their Kubernetes manifest, they get, they get deployed, right? Um, so yeah, you can use both. You should use both. Um, I think when you use the operator, it's when you need a lifecycle behind it or when you want the lifecycle behind it. And then you'd use a Helm chart when either you just don't have one from your upstream contributor or, uh, you know, it's just, it doesn't make sense to, to put it in an operator because sometimes it's like a, you know, too much sometimes. Okay. Finally, we'll get to the pattern. I is it multi-cloud GitOps, multi-cluster GitOps? Which which is the pattern? I guess the the technical terminology for the pattern. So we have a multi-cluster DevSecOps pattern, 
And what that really entails is that the pattern itself is comprised of multiple clusters. So in the in the case of DevSecOps, you have a development cluster where all the developers are there, you know, compiling and you know creating the images and using pipelines, etc. But then you have a hub cluster that has all the services like Quay. Uh, we have ODF for storage. Obviously, there's a, there's storage in every cluster, but we we have certain things, certain operators, and certain services that we have inside of the the hub cluster. And then in, in our pattern, we also have we we create a production cluster where once the developers create the, you know, compile and create the images, then those get deployed over to the production cluster. So that's why we call it a multi-cluster. A multi-cloud GitOps is, this is a pattern that I could deploy, whether it's AWS, whether it's Azure, whether it's, you know, Google Cloud. Um, our, in fact, our CI deploys most of our patterns in, in the different clouds, right? So they're all multi-cloud. We just decided that we were gonna call it multi-cloud, but really at the end of the day, you can deploy this pattern in just one cluster. The multi-cluster DevSecOps, you really, if you wanna do it, we're trying to mimic real real customers, right? So in a real development environment, you have a cluster that's just for developers, and probably multiple, but yeah. So that's why the, the name difference. Um, Let's talk about multi-cluster first. With multi-cluster, what are some of the challenges? And um, I know that when it comes to deployment, right? How? What are some patterns that need to be in place in order for GitOps to understand which one is a development cluster, which one is a production cluster? And if you have patterns, different kinds of environments that you want to deploy to, right? It's not just production for uh, you know web applications. Maybe you need a PCI compliant cluster that has specific requirements, right? How do you manage that? What changes in this kind of architecture? At the beginning of all this, right? Like our, our motto is bring your own cluster. So you, you, you'll need to bring your own OpenShift environment. So in that in that respect, right, you'd have that, that environment that's already set up with, you know, um, the PCI compliance or whatever other security compliances that you would have. Um, and then the way that we would essentially deploy to those clusters is through, through Helm, right? Through a Helm values file. So uh, we use a concept called cluster group. And so we essentially say, hey, look, this would be my PCI uh, cluster group. And then inside of ACM in our hub cluster, we would label the imported cluster or created cluster as the PCI cluster group, right? And then what will happen is the ACM policy will go through and it'll read that, that cluster group policy and it, it'll apply the policy, which means it's going to install OpenShift GitOps on that, uh, on that target cluster. And then OpenShift GitOps gets its initial application. And so what that application does is it pulls from the Git source and then it starts pulling the, um, the manifest down to that cluster. And then based off the values files, right, that's where we've, we've essentially declared, okay, on my PCI compliant cluster, I need to have X, Y, and Z applications with X, Y, and Z configuration, right? And so then that would all just be, it would all be declared in that values file. And then from the ACM policy getting to deployed to OpenShift GitOps applying the initial application, that sync happens and then the applications get deployed. And Rinse and repeat for dev, prod, you know, stig, whatever it is. For the audience that doesn't know what ACM is, it's advanced cluster management. And that's one of our products that 
allows you to really have a one pane of glass to look at what other any imported clusters that are out there that it's trying to manage. As Johnny said, right, we're we're allowing the infrastructure in our framework to go ahead and create these policies for ACM so that we can then push certain applications over to those other external clusters, whether it's development, whether it's a, you know, we have an industrial edge pattern. It mimics IOC devices, but it's it's mimicking IOC devices that are looking at temperature and vibrations. And then that data comes, you know, then then we started integrating all the all the other products, Kafka, AMQ broker, all that stuff, right? And it gets a little complicated. Um, but um, that's how we know if you're part of this cluster group, you're gonna need these applications. And one of the like you were asking about some of the challenges too, right? Like especially with multi-cluster DevSecOps, like some of the challenges were really the integration between products. And I think something that we've seen across a lot of our more complex patterns is when, you know, like today, if I have something that needs to be done outside of a manifest, I, I kubectl apply it or I kubectl create it or I kubectl delete it, whatever it is, right? So that imperative action is something I go in and I would do like label a node or whatever. So when we're trying to do these integrations that generally require like an API call or a an interaction within the uh, the GUI or whatever, we have to figure out how do I do that from the CLI, right? And so without it being overly hacky, you know, and um, so to me, that that's probably like one of the biggest challenges that we have with each of these patterns is, is like, okay, what are the pain points? What are the, what are the hand jam points? And then how do we, how do we recreate what we just did on the command line or in a UI, uh, either through an API call or through a, a, a Kubernetes job and essentially apply that same thing. Now that job is pretty simple to create. But then it's like, okay, well, let me go figure out all the R back that's required. Do I need to create a cluster role or a role or like, what all do I need to do to make this thing happen? You know, and um, so it, it does take some time uh, because it, it's all the little things that we take for granted, right? Because like, it just works. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, I'm almost scared to ask, did you have to do this to unseal and initialize Vault? <laughs> so we, we, I think, I think we did pretty good with, with Vault. We got a little clever. Um, we do use a job. Um, but we also use a playbook and, um, the way we have, a uh, our, our guy, Michele, he, he wrote a library within Ansible. And, um, so one thing with our secrets management, right? All secrets management, we don't want to put our secrets in get and stuff like that. So, um, he wrote a library that will ingest a file, like a values file from the local machine and create the, the secrets that we need based off of either a template or whatever we have in that values file. But yeah, we use, we essentially use Ansible and a um, an unsealed job to keep the vault unsealed consistently or constantly. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it, it runs on a cron. Yeah, every okay. ten minutes, I think. I think is what oh. it is. Yep. Okay. And what do you do with the unsealed keys? Just they just are completely automated or somewhere. So all all of our clusters don't live. So uh, yeah, it, it's basically like they burn. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> all right. <laughs> we do know that we're we're keeping these vault keys somewhere in some namespace that mm. somebody you know has the right privileges like cluster admin that they can actually access them yet um you know this is a demonstration right we're just demonstrating look if you want to do secrets management use something like vault first of all and then also don't keep those secrets in get i mean yeah. because GitHub, if you ever if you ever done this, and one of our, <laughs> our our teammates did this, with he he somehow you know just 
out of the blue just did a gig commit and all of a sudden there was aws aws keys going in to get and he got all the email oh, no. from github um if you've ever gone through that you really don't want to go that, through that twice um but um so that's why we keep those secrets outside of of get obviously um but there are some things obviously that we can we can do better always you know. in the spirit of improvement i think exactly always yeah. always yeah. yeah always yeah that's why we call you <laughs> oh oh no <laughs> so, actually but this does bring up an interesting point because there have been a lot of folks who they they want to put the secrets in git right because git is the source of truth and the the idea is that if they encrypt the secret and store it in git then this would be more in here in adherence to general GitOps principles. Why look for a secrets manager in particular? We, we actually reached out to um, Red Hat Security and we, we, we were asking them like from like, okay, if you were going to do this, <laughs> you know, here, here are the options. Like we could use something like SOPS or, you know, Vault. Like, is there, like what's the pros and cons of both that kind of thing? And, um, you know, I, I think that there's just the natural hesitance to put anything in Git because, Anybody can crack anything. So, I mean, like having it in Git just makes it one step closer or one step easier for them to get to something. And so, yeah, I, I think SOPS is a great product. I think SOPS like, is, is used quite a bit and uh, it's pretty well received. Um, and some of the other ones, I can't, there's another one I can't think of. Um, but, you know, I think at the end of the day, it just came down to like what, what all of us as engineers felt comfortable with. And, uh, you know, especially with the, the fist bump from, our product security team where they're like, Hey, you might just not keep that in and get, you know, I, I feel, I feel much better if you use vault or, you know, or something like it. Right. I mean, I, I always kind of, you know, think about, I mean, if, if something's lying there, somebody's really, you know, somebody's something that's really interested in this might want to go and hack it. Right. Um, so why, why put it there? Um, you know, you put your keys at a YMCA or whatever, you know, the keys are there. I mean, somebody might want to just bring them, even if you have some kind of um, device that, for it not to be stolen. But at, at the end of the day, right, I mean, if you look at something like, you know, you guys are starting with VSO and ESO, right? Those secrets are It's that whole abstraction of going to another place and having those secrets be stored in another place where maybe there's a DMZ and firewalls and all that stuff, right? Might be a, you know, a good way of, of attacking or making sure that those things don't get attacked, right? Um, the, the way we do validated patterns, we just happen to bring up vault in the same cluster. But at the end of the day, you really want that service. Again, I call it, you know, the supporting cast of services, right? They should be somewhere outside of, of the cluster, but that's just my opinion. Yeah, I think that's where it's a scale concern for me, because if you have so many clusters and you have secrets that maybe it goes in one cluster, a set of them goes in one cluster, another set of them goes in a different cluster, how do you keep track of the ones that you've encrypted and committed to Git and audit which ones have been used and then which ones get loaded into Kubernetes. You know, I imagine there's a lot of complexity to doing it when you have many different clusters and possibly many different namespaces with so many different secrets that are being used. I think it makes a lot of sense when you're bootstrapping or you're seeding and stuff like that, right? When you're, you're going for that initial push, I think that that type of config makes a ton of sense, right? So maybe you have a generic, you know, key or whatever that you can use that just can provision like a certain subset. Um, to me, that makes a lot of sense. But like for 
to your point, right, about multi-cluster, multi-app scale, all that, right, it, it does start to get a little scary. I mean, because like just just doing multi-cluster without any kind of management is scary, you know, so I could only imagine secret <laughs> management when, it's like, when it really matters, you know. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of right. management, how do you manage all these clusters and more specifically access control, right? Yeah, so the way that I'll, I'll start off with the, the way the demos are. And then I'll go with the mindset. Um, so the demos are pretty much like there's no user accounts or anything like that created. So it's just basically like run, app, config, deploy, and then we, we see it all working together, right? Um, happy path. Um, and but underneath all that, right, like the way the mindset is that like, okay, we know that people are going to use this. So then what we start doing is I don't give my default service account in my namespace cluster admin rights to go and do everything else, right? So I, I use RBAC. We create service accounts. And we create the RBAC around that, that that need, that utility that that service account needs to do, right? I need to go get a secret from another namespace, or I need to be able to get the status of a pod from another namespace, and that's how we do that. Um, what we recommend if you're trying if you're talking about authenticating to a, a cluster is that you would either have a key cloak, and then you would authenticate to a key cloak, right? And then uh, limit that that key cloak uh, login to a, a namespace or, or a couple of projects. Uh, but generally, like the way like Again, our deployments are very much like happy path. Everything's everything's fine, but um, we do have a we do have a pattern that's coming out. It's a community pattern right now that has implemented key cloak and it's using realms and, and different things like that. And we also have some. I'm kind of jumping ahead here, but we have some roadmap things too, where uh, we're working with some other people that are really interested in implementing key cloak and um, uh, other OIDC providers and stuff like that within the pattern framework. Um, but yeah, and then the overall management of the cluster uh, is through Advanced Cluster Manager and, and OpenShift GitOps, right? Um, so we're, we're very big. We use ACM quite a bit. Um, it's not required, but we do use it a lot. And um, the thing that ACM gives us is multi-cluster management, right? It's, that's, that's its bread and butter. But, but it also gives us governance, right? So I, I can go in and I can look within the console of ACM and I can say, oh look, I've got fifteen, I've got fifteen clusters that are out there. I've got thirty policies that should be applied to each one of those. Here's all of my clusters that are compliant. Here's all the ones that are not. Um, and then I can also have all of my uh, metrics bubbled up into ACM and then use this thing called observatorium to have this single pane of glass view into all of my clusters performance and stuff like that. So uh, at the the management layer is definitely all through ACM. Uh, if we were to remove that, then we would use OpenShift GitOps and then use the cluster values and stuff like that to, to essentially do the same thing. Got it. And when you talk about policies, are these um, mapping to you know OPA policy? Are they uh, specific to ACM? Um, what are the policies uh, defined or how are they defined? Yeah, they're, they're ACM objects, um, but essentially... Your uh, the cluster placement policies, they are, uh, I can't remember, there's like a couple different variants of it. But essentially think, think like I, I've created a secret on, on my hub cluster and I want to reuse that, that secret around my clusters, right? I could create a policy that will take that secret and push it out. I've also got like maybe PCI compliance policies, right? Like maybe I've got something that's, that's got that written out. I can use that and push that to a cluster. Um, so it's, it's, they're, they're specific to ACM. They're, they're one of the, um, the API objects within the ACM operator. Um, but yeah, they, there's a lot of generic ones that you can use for compliance. And then there's ones that you can get very specific that meet your need. We use it also, uh, so for example, in, in our industrial edge pattern, we have those IoT devices in some cluster in some region. 
and they have to communicate with the main Kafka, we call it the, the data lake, right? <laughs> In order to, you know, so the, we use MirrorMaker to actually then communicate and send that data from those clusters over to the data center, which, which then gets persisted so that the data analysts can do their AI ML models and run them and say, okay, that IoT device might need some maintenance. Uh, my point is that we use ACM policies also to then take the the CA, right, the public CA from for the Kafka cluster and send it over to that cluster, right, because that application will need it. So there's some policies that actually send, it's not, it's not really a secret, right, but it's a, it, it's a public CA certificate that is needed in order for that cluster to communicate back. And so we do that via policies with ICM as well. Um, and those are copied securely. I am wondering, did you deploy Kafka on Kubernetes? Or as part of the pattern, is it bring your own Kafka? Is it uh, separately stood up somewhere? Uh, we deploy two things and specifically for this industrialized, right? We do have a active MQ broker, right? And then we deploy a small Kafka cluster on the on the cluster. So we use AMQ streams. Um, and so then from there, the configuration starts, right? Of integrating, how do you integrate Kafka with AMQ broker, right? You use MQTT, um, we use CamelK to then take, you know, convert those topics that are in the broker to a Kafka and then just push it over to, you know, through the wire over to the central, central data center. So we deploy the AMQ streams operator, which is one of our products that includes Kafka and all that. And then we deploy MQ broker as well. I know that we talked about uh, industrial edge, right? And we had a multi-cluster DevSecOps. We had, I think there was a medical device, one, a medical one as well. And there were some other, but what is of the set of them that are out there today? Which ones, I guess, are the most interesting to you? I mean, for me, obviously, um, when I started, this journey with our initiative, it was really, uh, it was Industrial Edge, right? I mean, again, Industrial Edge has is a pretty comprehensive pattern where you know, I talked a little bit about having AMQ broker, AMQ streams with Kafka. There's S3 components, right? Because we were storing things into S3. We could store them into ODF as well. Um, so the interesting part to me is that it's, it, it's really something that was pitched to one of our customers and, and they really loved the architecture um, where you, and, and this is a manufacturing plant that had IOT devices. So it was a real, real customer uh, use case that we could apply this pattern. Um, so for me, industrial edge is kind of close to my heart just because that's where, I, where we started this whole initiative. Um, and then, you know, I worked a little bit on medical and then handed it off to to Johnny, which we did a great job doing, doing that part because it's it's pretty complicated as well. Um, but the interesting part again for me is the integration of all these components, right? Whether you know that's part of our validation, if you will, with CI is we validate that you know a lot of times we individually say the components work, the component works, the component works, and then when you start using things like you know um kafka and then sending data over to another kafka and you know is mirror maker really working and you know those components right that that integration those integration points i think are patterns 
test those. And then through CI, we really get the, the value of what our patterns are. So, yeah, I mean, I, I cut my teeth on medical diagnosis and um, I think the use case for it's evolved over maybe, I don't know if the use case has evolved, but like the idea behind it, like it went from being like ex, uh, pneumonia detection to like, this is an object detection pattern, right? It, it really is about like taking images and detecting an object within it and then making a, making a call on it. Like, is it you know, some statistical thing? Like, is it, is it good? Is it bad? Is it, is it neutral or do I not know? Um, so, you know, mainly because I spent so much time getting that thing working and, and getting it like to where it is right now, you know, it, it's, it was pretty awesome. But I, I think the, the one that I really enjoy multi-cloud GitOps, And I, the reason why is it's so simple. Like it is just, it is the most basic pattern. And like, if you're not used to it, you're like, <clears throat> mind's blown because you're like, it's just doing everything. And it's just like very little integration and it's not complex. And it's just, it, it does a lot, but you can't really tell. And it doesn't take a lot to, to, it doesn't take a lot for you to just use it. I have many questions, but the, the question I think everybody's hearing when they hear a CI is how often are your CI pipelines green? <laughs> <laughs> with oh. all of these patterns and all of these <laughs> integrations to test, uh, how often do you find yourself going and fixing some of them? <laughs> how often do I see those yellow or, you know, we have red obviously is a, a completely failed. Um, and it had to do with the, te the CI test. Yellow means that there's something happened with the infrastructure, right? So again, I'm deploying to AWS and maybe there was something that happened in US East too, right? Like it happened a few weeks ago, right? And it, it couldn't deploy even a, a, an instance or a cluster. Um, and then we have green. So more, more often than, than not, we have green, but you know, there are times when it's potentially an upgrade, right? Of an operator comes into there and then all of a sudden stuff happened. When we went from 1.24 in Kubernetes to 1.25, right? And then SCC has changed and those, that's a whole security context change. We, we had some issues in our pattern, right? Where we were deploying things. Um, and so we needed to, especially in the pipelines too, we needed to create those security contexts and change some manifests. But overall, I mean, uh, it, it varies depending on, on the pattern and the version of OpenShift. Right now, 4.13 is pretty red, but I mean, that's the point, right? The point is, hey, you know, for 413, these things are, are a problem and we have an abundance of logs and we do an OC must gather and here's all the data. And in addition to all of this, now we're actually looking at pre-releases. Oh. <laughs> so, so. This is like a whole testing suite at this point. Johnny just oh, dropped yeah. a link. I'm going to put it in show notes because it's really interesting. But there's a link, a status page link to all yes. of these patterns. There and is a status Organized. Page. It's great. It's organized by date, <laughs> by pattern, by platform, by version. I mean, it's organized. <laughs> yeah, in, in case of point, just on the, on the, 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 Come on, words <laughs> on the on the things that we find, right? So ODF OpenShift Data Foundation for 4.13 just released, I think, middle of last week, right? So awesome update. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. It broke medical on uh, the way that medical diagnosis uses ODF because the um, the status in their uh, object store they changed the the status output from saying like ready or saying it used to say connected and now it says ready. 
And so because we have a, a, a task that's going out and it's waiting for that status to come back with that specific word, oh. it broke it. So it's little things like that, yeah. though, right? Like in, in, in their case, right, it's it's nothing against them. No. Right? They're deploying their thing. It, it all works. But to Lester's point a second ago, we deploy this component. It works great. We've tested all these different things within it. All right. We're all awesome. The Red Hat fist bump. But then when you start integrating with other things that may, may be using like a previous version, right now, they're not they're not seeing the things that we see. And that the things that our customers see are the things that Red Hat engineering isn't necessarily seeing when we're developing our in our silos. Right. So th- this this is a big value. Yeah, it's a, it's really cool. It's really interesting to hear that because it's effectively a broken contract, right? You expect that status to be one schema and one value. And yep. it's not, I mean, for from an engineering standpoint, it seems like a very subtle change. Let's just change it to connected. Super but the trivial. reality, yeah, it's not exactly trivial for anybody who's depending on that. Mm-hmm. What's next for patterns? Uh, I hear there's a roadmap. Um, what are some other use cases you're interested in and, and or what are some changes that you're thinking about implementing? There's a, a subscription called OpenShift Platform Plus, and it's all these different pieces. It's OpenShift and friends, right? It's OpenShift, ODF, uh, ACM, Advanced Cluster Manager, Advanced Cluster Security, and then the Quay or Key, if you're out there and you're a key person, uh, the registry, right? And it's it's you you get a subscription and it's got all those things in it. And so we're going to write, uh, we're going to create a pattern based off of that bundle. And uh, just to help, it's an, essentially an enabler, right? We want to enable our sales teams, our consulting teams, our customers to take this pattern and deploy these things quicker, right? So that there's going to be like a little integration between each of the products enough to get them all stood up and, and talking to each other. Uh, but it's going to be Legos, right? At the end of the day, it's going to be like the little clear bag that's got the directions in it. And you'll have a picture at the end that says OpenShift Platform Plus, but all the pieces are going to be in there and you can use them or not. Um, so that that's the that's one. And then another is... Um, I don't know if you if you're familiar with like hosted control planes or if you've heard of HyperShift or anything like that, um, but there's a, a product or a project within Red Hat called HyperShift Hosted Control Planes is the official name I think, um, and essentially it virtualizes your control plane, uh, and so you can have you can have a small cluster your management cluster and then um, whenever you create new clusters instead of having three new control plane nodes it creates a namespace and then hosts the control plane for you. Hence the hosted control plane. So we're going to look into that for um, our some of our cost stuff to try and help drive down some of our uh, cloud bill because uh, it's getting a little crazy. Um, and then, you know, I think Marty's working on some some more like Ansible only type stuff. Uh, so uh, Marty Johnson or Mark, Mark Johnson, Marty Jackson is on our team, and he's been working on uh, this Ansible only pattern. So we should hopefully have something coming out this quarter or well Q3. Uh, and then the last thing for me is uh, Scupper is it's been productized within Red Hat, so Red Hat Service Interconnect, and um, so that's something like in Q4 I'm really looking forward to working on, and that's that's that app to app communication between multiple clusters and, and environments, right? So I have a bare metal environment with an app, I have a cloud environment with an app, I can use Scupper to to make that connection, right? So that these apps can communicate with each other. So say if I have an RDS out in Amazon and I want my you know my uh, bare metal instance to be able to access it, I can use Scupper to actually go out and, and talk to that. So uh, look, really looking forward to it. That's it for me. I'm done. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for, for me, I, I continue to reach out to our consulting arm and uh, we're working with our chief architects and, and our portfolio architects, uh, architecture group again, to kind of get up 
you know, new use cases, right? We have customers in the telco area. We have customers in manufacturing. Um, we have customers, all you know, in petroleum, all all these different uh, areas and domains that we really need to kind of take our framework and see how it could be adapted to to those and and using our GitOps mentality, right? So we're definitely actively actively working with them on on making sure that we get new use cases, etc. We continue to mature the CI process as we're also testing pre-releases now of operators, et cetera. And that's, that's been pretty challenging, right? Um, but again, it's a, it's a good, good thing for us at Red Hat to kind of validate that the, you know, the development process is actually really working and you don't go ahead and release something that, that might be broken. Uh, so that we continue to mature that, um, obviously secrets management and all that we, we're really looking into, into those, uh, those aspects, right. And making sure that we have the right services and the, and that the framework supports a lot of those things. So, um, you know, we, we're really trying to make our patterns consumable by, by, you know, either consultants or, you know, I'll, I'll partners, et cetera. Right. And make sure that it does one make sense. And then like Johnny said, be able to take those building blocks and then put them together. Right. Um, and we kind of do the hard part of trying to integrate those. So that's, that's where we're doing. We have one final question <laughs> and this is All an, right. yes, this is in tradition uh, of, on this podcast. Uh, note that it's a slightly less serious question. And so you may be taken aback by, by its topic. Uh, I have to warn guests on this one, uh, but in the spirit of red hat, uh, if you were a hat, what would you be? Which one would you be and why? I'm Puerto Rican, so you know we we have little small fedoras that we. My dad used to work, you know, wear those all the time. Um, so I would say a fedora. I, I know it's kind of like, oh, but you work for Red Hat. I mean, so that doesn't you know work. But if you don't like the fedora one, I would say a cowboy hat. Oh, okay. A little cowboy hat and say, yeehaw, let's go. <laughs> yeah, I'd be a beer can helmet, you know, with the dual beer cans on the side. <laughs> I guess that counts as a hat. I mean, the helmet counts as a hat. I I don't know. I didn't really look up the definition of the hat. I would be a very simple baseball cap, mostly because, you know, it's versatile. You can customize it to whatever you need. Functions, you know, for various purposes, Uh, you know, does the job, keeps the the sun out of your eyes. It's very, very important. Yeah, it's functional, you know. Like (laughs) I said, this subject is always, everybody's always taken aback by the last question. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because we always choose the most random, uh, random topic. Uh, it was great having you here on the podcast. Thanks for taking the time to explain all of this. If someone was interested in validated patterns, do you have any suggestions on where they should go and how they should get more information? Yeah, they can go to our website. It's at https colon uh, Linux slash Linux slash. I don't know what that is. Backslash uh, uh, hybrid dash cloud dash patterns dot io. And um, that's our landing page for all of our documentation. Um, Our GitHub page is github.com slash hybrid dash cloud dash patterns. Uh, And that's that's where all of the uh, code for our patterns are. 
Uh, so yeah, they could go and find them there. And if they wanted to reach out to like Lester or our group, um, I'll, I'll put it in the show notes or I'll, I'll send you the link, Rosemary, where uh, it's it's out to our um, uh, site channel in OpenShift Commons. And if I can just do a shameless plug for OpenShift Commons, if, if, if you're using OpenShift anywhere and you just want to ask questions about it, uh, go ahead and use a, you know, become a, a member of the OpenShift Commons Slack workspace. And uh, yeah, you'll find people like Lester and I out there. You've been listening to HashiCasts with your hosts, Rosemary Wong. Our guests today were Lester Claudio and Johnny Rickard from Red Hat. Be sure to tune in next time.